Well, we're going to look at some selected verses from the second shortest book of the Old Testament, the book of Haggai. So open your Bibles to Haggai. It's uh, really easy to find him. If you start at the very beginning of the New Testament and go backwards, you'll go to Malachi, Zechariah, and then Haggai. If you don't have a Bible, the verses will be up on the screen, and we'd love to give you a Bible. If you don't have one, you can go right across the courtyard after the service is over into the bookstore and uh, tell them you need a Bible, and we'd be glad to give that to you. Um, so Haggai is, is, is only two chapters and 38 verses, but it is clearly dated from August to December of 520 B.C. Haggai ministered to the Jews who had returned to Jerusalem in 538 B.C. after 70 years of exile in Babylon. And the purpose of Haggai's ministry was to direct those returnees to consider their ways. Look with me at a few of the verses. Haggai chapter 1, verse 5. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Look at verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Turn over to chapter 2, verse 15. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 18. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the temple, of the Lord's temple was laid, consider. Five times God tells them to consider. Uh, The NIV translates that phrase, consider your ways, as give careful thought to your ways. It it literally means to think clearly and deeply about what you've been doing. The reason that God sent Haggai to bring this message is because his people had drifted into a way of life where their intellectual belief in God was not reflected in the way they were living and giving. Let me set the the scene historically. In 586 B.C., the temple and the city of Jerusalem were both destroyed by the Babylonian armies led by King Nebuchadnezzar. Those who survived were taken into captivity and brought to the city of Babylon. Well, when Babylon was eventually overthrown by the Persians, their king, Cyrus, issued a decree immediately allowing the Jews to go back to Jerusalem for the specific purpose of rebuilding the temple. If you want to keep your finger there in Haggai and turn over to the left to Ezra or just follow along on the wall, chapter 6 of Ezra, beginning in verse 3. A record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundation be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits and its breadth 60 cubits, with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. And also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each of its to its place. You shall put them in the house of the Lord." God providentially influenced this pagan king to pay for the reconstruction of the temple and to demonstrate to God's people the importance 
of his house. So those who returned were very clear that the main reason that they went back to Jerusalem was to rebuild the temple. That was in 538 B.C. Now here we are in 520 B.C. and the temple still isn't finished. As soon as they got there, though, they did get started. They cleared the area of rubble. They rebuilt the altar so that the system of sacrificial worship could be restored. They even, within those first two years, laid the foundations of the entire temple. But then the work came to a halt. Outside opposition and personal difficulties stopped the project. God's house lay in ruins for the next 16 years. God's people had lost their vision for God's house. The visible manifestation of God's presence was no longer a priority for them. Today, in light of of Haggai's message, I I would like us to uh, consider our ways, to think about deeply and clearly about what we've been doing, and to ask ourselves, do we have our priorities in order? Have we put first things first? Is our relationship to our great God and Savior the most important relationship in our lives? And, And if so... Would the people around us see it in the way we live, in the way we serve, in the way we we give? Those of us who have, have trusted Christ as our Savior know that it is foolish to live primarily for the things of this world. We know in our hearts that they will not deliver the satisfaction that they promise On Christmas Eve, Tim reminded us that one of the purposes that Jesus came was to bring joy for his people. Yet we will never experience the joy that God has for us unless we get our priorities in order. Unless we do, as Jesus commanded in Matthew 6.33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And I think most of us know that verse and even though we know that's what God would call us as our priority, um, we will keep drifting towards the world and away from God if we don't consider our ways. For the Israelites in, in Haggai's day, even though the rebuilding of the temple started out as their highest priority, over time, they got used to living with the, the temple in rubble, And they succeeded in in soothing their conscience over the neglect of the work that they were responsible for by making a very plausible excuse. Look at chapter 1, verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. I can just hear them say it. The temple really is a very important project. It's just not the right time. They were probably saying uh, something like, the temple's a great cause, but the timing's bad. There's an economic downturn. The stock market is down. The value of my house is down. Jobs are scarce. I can barely provide for my family. 
as soon as I get things in order, I'll give generously to God and I'll get going on that building project once again. But here we are 16 years later and it hadn't happened because in reality, it wasn't the economy that was the issue. The issue was they were demonstrating by how they were living that there were other things that were more important to them than the things of God. Look at uh, verse 9. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because my house that lies in ruins, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. That phrase, busies himself with his own house, is um, literally uh, in, in Hebrew says, running after your own house. It means to give such priority to that one thing that all my effort, all my resources, all my time goes to that one thing that is my chief concern. And here for the Israelites, after a period of time, that one concern, that most important priority was their own homes. The reason they had little concern for God's house and the reason that it lie unfinished wasn't because of a bad economy or opposition from the Samaritans. It was because they were more concerned about their own houses. They had delayed doing God's work because they were completely focused on their own houses, their own stuff, and because they had their priorities out of order. For us, if we are planning to make God's work the number one priority in our life sometime in the future, then we're making the very same mistake that the Israelites made in Haggai's day. And God is calling us to do the very same thing he called them to do, and that is to consider our ways. And even though this book was written 2,500 years ago, it is very applicable for us today. Consider your ways. And God is saying that to us as we come to the end of 2013 and have the opportunity to reflect upon the year that's passed. We need to evaluate our lives and see if we are guilty of not putting first things first, of having misplaced priorities. And I think the question that we can ask ourselves is, am I so focused on improving my financial situation that I've been unable to give myself to God? And I think the way we can, we can tell uh, just not too long ago, the Powerball um, was running, oh, about $600 million, uh, minor sum. Um, did you buy a bunch of tickets thinking, boy, if I just won that lottery, I would be all straightened out and I'd take care of all the things that need to be taken care of? Probably more realistically, you've been thinking, if I just get that raise or if I just get that promotion, if I only made a few thousand dollars more, I could get my life straightened out, and then I would put God's work as my priority. Or maybe not, it's not the income. Maybe it's our expenses. Maybe it's just that if I get that credit card paid off or, or if that car loan, once I make that last payment, oh, man, then I'm going to make that my priority. Or, or, or maybe it's not income or expenses. Maybe, maybe it's just the things. Maybe 
once I get into this new house, once, once we get settled and get the rooms furnished and everything's clear, then I'll do it. Or, or maybe it's once I get rid of that clunker, that car that's just a gas guzzler, and I get a car that's more fuel efficient, and I spend less money on gas, then that's when I'll give my priorities to God. But ultimately, whatever the reason, whatever we have put ahead of God, whatever we have given the effort to, the thought to, the resources to, thinking that that will satisfy us, that will be the thing that will allow us to do what we really want to do. We're wrong. It won't. They won't. They will never satisfy us. A perfect illustration of this is, is Christmas. So that gift or those gifts that your kids were absolutely dying for all year, Oh, man, if I just, once I get that gift, I am going to be the happiest person in the world. I will be so excited. It'll be the best. Okay, we're four days later. How many of those are sitting in the corner of their bedroom right now? They're not even looking at it anymore because it didn't bring the satisfaction that they thought it would. And that's the same thing for us. If we put our hope into material things rather than spiritual things, if we put those things ahead of God, what ends up happening is two significant problems are created for the church of Jesus Christ. One is the church is full of dissatisfied, frustrated, unproductive people, and God is not worshipped the way he deserves. Now, please don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying, nor is the Bible saying, that there's anything wrong with living in a beautiful home or comfortable surroundings. There's nothing wrong or sinful in that. What God is pointing the accusing finger at Israel about is that their priorities were misplaced, and because of that, it led them to live a materialistic, worldly-minded, self-centered lifestyle that caused them to desire the things of this world ahead of God. It caused them to care less about giving to God what God was calling them to consider was the fact that their hearts, their efforts, and their priorities were set more upon material things than spiritual things. Please hear this. The problem was not their nice houses. The problem was the difference between their nice houses and the state of God's house. See, that was the indicator that they had their priorities all wrong. And as a result, God's house lay in ruins and their lives were filled with frustration. Look again with me at chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Now look at verse 9. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that lies in ruins. Chapter 2, verse 16. How did you fare? Like he's saying, how's it going for you? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10 there. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, says the Lord of hosts. 
And see, God does the exact same thing today when our priorities are misplaced. He will scatter our take-home pay so that no matter how much comes in, it doesn't seem to have enough. He will frustrate our efforts at financial security. Not to punish us, If our priorities are wrong, all our career efforts to provide a living and a sense of security will eventually lead to frustration and even worse, a neglect of God's worship. Misplaced priorities may be one of the most common and serious challenges to the joyful Christian life that Jesus came to give us. Some of us might be here today, right now, with our lives in disarray because our priorities are not in order. Because you've chosen to put something other than Jesus Christ first in your life. So as you reflect on 2013 and kind of look back and consider your ways and you look and you go, well, I guess my priorities really haven't been that good. Or, or maybe you were even sure. But I don't, I don't know. How do I do it? How, how do I put God as my number one priority? How do I seek first his kingdom and his righteousness? Well, the answer is very, very simple. As God's people, we need to make our priority that which God makes his. And there is no question, start to finish, Old Testament and New Testament, the thing that God places as his pri highest priority, the thing that God passionately pursues above all else, above everything, anything, everything, is that he received the glory due him. God's highest passion and pursuit and priority is his glory. And that is not selfishness. That is the essence of his love because he knows if we will pursue his glory, then we will find real satisfaction. We will find real peace and we will find real joy. All throughout scripture, God demonstrates the power and the desire for his glory. When he has first established Israel as a nation, when he, he redeemed them from slavery out of Egypt, all throughout the plagues, all throughout his demonstration of his power over Pharaoh and over Egypt was to demonstrate his glory. In the book of Ezekiel, 39 times God declares that he does his mighty works for his glory. It's all throughout the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we see that the Holy Spirit focuses his teaching on God's glory. Keep your finger there in Haggai and turn over to the New Testament, to the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verse 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Christ. Just go over one chapter, just a few verses to chapter 17, and we'll see that God the Son, his main focus was the glory of God the Father. 
chapter 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, number one focus, number one priority is the glory of God. Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. In, in Ephesians chapter 1, God says he chooses a people for himself for his glory. Therefore, it is absolutely clear our number one priority should be the same priority that God has, and that is that in everything we do, everything we say, it should be for the glory of God. Look at 1 Corinthians 10.31. Everything we do, even the mundane things like eating and drinking, all should be to the glory of God. Okay, so God can do that. Sure, he's God. The heavens can do that. God created them for that purpose. What about us? Mortal, broken, fallible human beings. How do we bring glory to God in our lives? How do we make that our first priority? Well, believe it or not, I think the answer is in the book of Haggai. Turn back there with me. Chapter 1, verse 8. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build a house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified. You see, there's three action words in that verse. Go, bring, and build. One practical way that God can receive pleasure in our lives and be glorified is when we put him first in the way we serve and in the way we give. See, priorities are all about what we love most. And love is an action word. We demonstrate our love for God and our desire to bring Him glory through our actions. The Christian life is not passive. A changed heart is demonstrated by changed actions. God receives glory when we obey Him in the way we serve, the way we live, and the way we give. Now, I know this is a little bit uncomfortable, but if we really want to consider our ways, if we really want to see if our actions demonstrate God's glory is our highest priority, the absolute best way, the best way to evaluate our priorities and see what we love most is to look at our checkbook. Or I guess today would be to go online and take a look at our bank statement. How we use our wealth is the primary indicator of what is most important in our lives. Please understand, this is not a year-end message about how badly the church needs your money. And certainly, God doesn't need your money. He owns everything anyway. No, this is about us having our priorities in order so that we can live a productive, joyful, God-honoring, and God-glorifying life. And without a doubt, the most telling revelation regarding what is most important to us is how we handle our money. It's not how much we have. It's how we use it. And God is.
because it is a clear reflection of what's most important in our lives. And believe me, the Bible speaks very clearly about money. Jesus certainly didn't shy away from it. In fact, of his uh, 38 parables, 16 of them are about money and possessions. Would you believe that one out of every 10 verses in the gospel, 288 in all, are about money and possessions? The Bible has 500-ish verses on prayer, 500 verses or so on faith, more than 2,000 verses on how we handle our resources. See, in Matthew 6.33, Jesus was coming to the conclusion of of his most famous sermon, the, the Sermon on the Mount. And when he said to those people and to us to seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness, it was right in the middle of his discussion on financial security. He said, don't worry about what you wear. Don't worry about what you eat. He said, the, the Gentiles, those people who don't know God, that's what they worry about, don't you? And you see, he knew how easy it would be for us to allow the quest for financial security to become the priority in our lives. If we're not careful, we'll look just like the world. The reason we get up in the morning is to get to work, to earn money, to pay bills, to buy toys, and to save money so that we can buy more toys and pay more bills. And Jesus says that's what the world does. No, he says to us, don't chase after financial security. Chase after God's glory, and then let him add those things to you. But see, it takes constant self-evaluation or regularly considering our ways. If we don't give thought to how we're using our resources, we'll naturally spend it on our own agenda and not God's. We'll keep drifting towards the world because wealth and things are so alluring to us. And you know what? I I have to admit that part of the problem is ours as the church leadership. You see, if the number one indicator of where our hearts was was how we parent, you'd say, way to go. Talk about parenting. That's terrific. If, If the number one indicator of where our heart was was how our marriage was doing, and we talked a lot about marriage, you'd say, way to go. But when the number one indicator of where our heart is is money, and we talk about it, you leave here and go, all they ever do is talk about money. <laughs> so we're afraid, honestly. We're afraid. We don't, want, we don't want you to leave feeling that way. So to our detriment, we don't talk about it very much. And therefore, we as God's people don't do the kind of regular self-examination necessary to make sure that our priorities are in order. See, for the Israelites in Haggai's day, they claimed that they would get to God's work, that they would make it their number one priority as soon as they got their houses in order, as soon as their businesses were where they wanted them to be, as soon as their herds were fattened and ready. Then they'd get to God's work. And here we are, 16 years later, and the temple lies in ruins. You see, and the reason was because they had it backwards. God says over and over again, clearly, you give me the first fruits. You give me the first of what you receive. 
when, when he established Israel as a nation and began to give them his laws to set them apart from the world, one of the very first things he said to them was in Exodus 22, verse 29. He said, you shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. Don't delay. Make it first. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul speaking of the, the very generous Macedonian churches. He said, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us to earnestly, earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints, and this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Guys, God is way too glorious, way too magnificent, way too wonderful for us to give him the leftovers. And, and the very wonderful thing about Haggai's message is, is that it, it got results. The people of Israel responded and went back to work on the temple. But this time, it was different. This time, their work brought glory to God. And there's one specific reason. Look with me at chapter 1, verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the word of Haggai the prophet, and as the, Lord their God, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. See, the difference was this time they did it in the fear of the Lord. And that simply means to do something with the understanding God that allows us to trust him. When we fear God, it means we recognize how great he is. It means we recognize and, and approach him with an attitude of reverence so that we can trust him. That's what they did. They went back to work in the fear of God. They went back to work for the glory of God. See, they, they started out out of duty. This pagan king told them that's what they have to do. And you know what happened? They fizzled out. They fizzled out. After two years, they couldn't do it. But they finished out of love for God and his glory. And they finished the temple. And do you know that that temple, even though it didn't compare to the glory of Solomon's temple, was the very place that Jesus Christ himself taught and came to visit his people in. And God's people responded out of love and for God's glory, and they finished the work. So if you decide to leave here today and say, oh, I, I guess he's right. I probably should write a bigger check, or I, I should sign up to serve in children's ministry, or I should make sure I get my kid to, to winter camp. It isn't going to last. If you're doing it out of duty or out of guilt or out of responsibility, it'll fizzle. It won't give God glory. It's just like the gym, right? In January, it's full, right? And then in February, it's a little less full. In March, it's even less full. And by April, it's back to the way it used to be. If we want to truly consider our ways and truly be generous people, 
it must come from a desire to glorify God. Generosity is one of the six essential elements of this church. And the reason that it is, is because when we can respond to God and his glory with generosity, we will experience the kind of joy that Jesus came to give. He said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And when we as joyful people are generously supporting the work of God and people come in to visit and they see the joy and the generosity, they're attracted to our great God and Savior. But that generosity has to come from a life, all of life, that desires to give glory to God. If God's glory isn't the priority in our lives, then we're living out the Christian faith in a way that God never intended it to be lived. Uh, some of you have heard of a, a, a great uh, former football coach by the name of Tom Landry. Um, Tom coached the uh, Dallas Cowboys from 1960 to 1988, 29 consecutive years with the same team. He is a Hall of Fame coach. He had phenomenal success over those 29 years. Five NFC championships, two Super Bowls. Tom Landry had his priorities in order. He said this, the thrill of knowing Jesus is the greatest thing that ever happened to me. I think God has put me in a very special place and he expects me to use it to his glory in everything I do. Whether coaching football or talking to the press, I'm always a Christian. Christ is first, family second, football third. In 1958, I did something everyone who has been successful must do. I determined my priorities in life. Christ is first, then family, and then football. Here is one of the most successful men in his field in the history of the game. Understood what needed to be his priority. And he didn't suffer for it. In fact, his success again was remarkable. Today, today, we have professional and college football coaches working 16 to 20 hours a day, driven, driven by the priority of winning, driven by the priority of that big contract. And because their priorities are mixed up and they're so focused on those things, some of them are dropping like flies right on the football field. Heart attacks, strokes, See, churches struggle to meet budgets, to fill volunteer needs, not because there's not enough money, not because there's not enough people, but simply because God's people have their priorities mixed up. If you've looked in the bulletin over this past year, you'll see that there's been a, a huge deficit between budgeted giving and actual giving. In fact, it's the largest in the church's history. We're not getting enough in each week to cover all our expenses. You know what? Even though I'm the Jewish bookkeeper, I'm not the least bit worried about it. You see, if we have to, we'll cut expenses. 
We'll have to cut staff, we'll cut staff. If we have to cut programs, we'll cut programs. If we have to sell off assets, we'll sell off assets. But ultimately, God's going to provide. No, that's not what's important. What's important is that God's people consider our ways so that our life reflects the fact that we love God and that we trust him and that our highest priority is his glory. See, if that's really the case, not only will the church have plenty of resources and plenty of people, but we as individuals, when, when we come to those times in our life when we're tempted to maybe click on that website that we know we shouldn't, if our desire is to live for God's glory and to honor him with everything we do, maybe we won't click on that site. Or, or if we're tempted to, to get involved in a, in a conversation that we know is gossip, even though it sounds so juicy because we want to bring glory to God in everything that we do, maybe we'll walk away. Or, or when we're tempted to scream at our spouse because we're so frustrated or so aggravated because we want God's glory to be primary in our lives, maybe we'll respond in love and, instead of in anger. But ultimately, I would challenge all of us in light of God's emphasis on the way we handle our resources. And as we take a look back at 2013, to really take a look back at how we've been giving. And if it hasn't reflected the fact that God really is a priority in our lives, then I really would consider making a year-end gift. Again, not because God needs it, not because the church needs it, he'll provide, but because we need to demonstrate to God that we love him through our actions. And even as we are, you're considering uh, a, a budget for 2014, you need to ask yourself if the way I'm planning to allocate my resources will bring glory to God. Ask yourself, is the clearest indicator of where my priorities lie, my checkbook, really bringing glory to God? I have to be honest. Um, as I prepared this lesson and studied and prayed, and even as I speak these words, I am overwhelmed by my own inability to live for God's glory. The reality is none of us can unless we do it by God's grace, unless we do it in the Spirit's power. And that's exactly what happened in Haggai's day. One more verse. Look at chapter 1, verse 14. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. You see, the reason they were able to do it out of the fear of God, the reason they were able to do it out of reverence for God and trust in him was because God's spirit enabled them. God's spirit gave them the power and the desire to do it. So as we consider our ways and desire to bring glory to God, the very first thing we must do is ask God in prayer to give us the grace by his spirit to really desire to bring him glory. Even though we are sinful 
even though our best efforts will always be impacted by that sin. We have to acknowledge that apart from him, we can do nothing. And if by his grace, through his power, we desire to truly live generous lives, then he will be glorified and we will experience the kind of joy that Jesus came for his people to have. After all, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we have the opportunity to consider our ways, to really think about what we've been doing and where our priorities have been. Lord, I pray for each of us, by the power of your spirit, because of your grace, you will allow us the desire to bring glory to you in everything that we do, everything that we say. Lord, that we would pursue that which you pursue, your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, there are guys up front here if you need to pray with someone or talk to someone about what it means to have a life lived for Jesus, then come on up front. If not, otherwise, have a great, happy new year.